Welcome to the Future of Growth podcast with Agrify. Here, we'll be exploring all things related to cannabis, ag tech, controlled environment agriculture, vertical farming, cultivation science, industry trends, and more. Informed by science and driven by data, episodes will enlighten our audience through open dialogue with thought leaders, innovators, and industry disruptors who are forging the future of growth. Join our host, David Kessler, Chief Science Officer at Agrify, as he dives into the many facets that cannabis and agriculture have to offer. Stay connected with Agrify by joining us on all platforms at Agrify Corp. and by visiting our website, www.agrify.com. Sit tight for another episode of The Future of Growth, coming at you now. Hi, everybody. I'm David Kessler, the Chief Science Officer at Agrify. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Future of Growth. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Nick Tennant. Nick is the founder and chief technology officer at Precision Extraction Solutions, the global leader in cannabis extraction equipment, technology, site planning, compliance, and training. Nick has been a cannabis entrepreneur for over 12 years and has developed and operated cannabis companies within the industry. Nick, thank you so much for coming on, for joining our show and uh, enlightening our audience today. Nick, you have always innovated ahead of the curve, not behind, so I'm eager to see where you guys land. But you bring up uh, discussions of MSOs or multi-state operators, as well as changing political uh, regulations on a federal level. So I'd like to unpack those a little bit because federal legalization is something that's hot in the news and has been for uh, the recent last 12, 16 months or more. But MSOs, multi-state operators, are really gaining traction in key markets, essentially with reproducible process, uh, being able to replicate in different states. So how does your technology, how does your relationship with MSOs work, and how are you fostering their growth along with yours in an era of what I would say is interest in federal legalization without actually action moving it forward? So uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, so let's so we'll start with the MSOs. Um, we'll kind of unpack that a little bit. You know, you have to understand really what, what these entities are trying to accomplish. And, you know, what they're trying to accomplish essentially is a nationwide rollout of their processes, their production, and ultimately their retail locations. And, you know, the expectations that have been put on them from Wall Street are... Uh, a heavy weight, we'll say. And, you know, to scale a business at that type of scale, yes, you can do it by acquisition, but even integrating all the acquisitions is, it's a monumental task. So what we've found is, you know, the multi-state operators, as they're scaling an extraction, they need a expert team, right? They can't hire people fast enough. They can't even find enough experts fast enough in order to expand their operations and be able to hit their goals. So what we've really done and what's made us extremely successful with the multi-state operators is just how intimate and how close we are and how much we understand their business, their problems, and where they need to be. I'll give you an example. Um, So one of our largest multi-state operators, you know, our guys are out there two to three times a week right now. 
Mm. And it's because, you know, they've acquired a bunch of different processing sites through acquisition. And they've got people that, you know, started in the industry a year ago running these places. They don't have standardized processes. They don't have standardized equipment. They don't have standardized lab design. Uh, but they've they've inherent, inherited all of this infrastructure and they're hiring these people and they really need experts to come in there. So, you know, enter precision. We've been doing this for a decade and it's kind of just like riding a bike for us at this point. It's like, okay, yeah, you need this, you need this, you need this. Here's how we're going to make it more efficient. Here's your problem here. Here's the process you need to integrate in this regard. And when we do that, we become more than just somebody that sells them equipment. Not only do we become very close friends, but we also really become trusted advisors, confidants, consultants um, that are solutions providers, right? We're integrators, we're solutions providers. And, and they know that they can call on us and our team. And if we got to get on a plane and be there tomorrow, we're on a plane and we're there tomorrow to fix whatever they got to fix. Uh, and they know because we're building that confidence within their processing division, they know if they do an acquisition, even if the acquisition infrastructure is you know, garbage, we can come in and we can fix it. And for them, it's just a matter of money, which they have. Um, it's really the intellectual capital that they, that they need. And I think that's the, the strongest value proposition that Precision provides. Obviously we provide the technology, the equipment, the design, the site planning, the training, the SOPs, everything, right? But that's all brain power. And the people within our organization uh, are just amazing. You know, we've been extremely fortunate to bring on just some extremely, extremely talented people that, you know, you'd love to have on your podcast also, to be frank, because they're so articulate and they know the industry so well and they've been in it so long. And our people within our organization is really what drives our success. We've got a, a roster of A players and ultimately, that's how we're fostering uh, success and growth for the multi-state operators. Nick, that's amazing. First, let me say, send all your talent to people my way. Would love to talk <laughs> to them. Um, sure. <clears throat> thank you. And then, you know, it's amazing. You're, you're describing the challenges of an MSO acquiring smaller operators and trying to put them under one umbrella. And just to kind of bullet this for uh, my listeners. Imagine a world-class chef. They know the knowledge, they know how to cook, but if you buy 40 different restaurants, some are subways and they just have a cool area and no stove and others are, you know, world-class kitchens. And then you're trying to integrate them to produce a standardized menu across all the restaurants it takes a lot to re-outfit the restaurants, get them to the same place where even the same policies and best practices can be followed. If I don't have a cooktop, I can't cook <laughs> on a cooktop. Yeah. It just is what it is. So, I mean, not only are you coming in and helping them re-outfit the kitchen, literally and figuratively, you're also providing, I guess, the chef's level of knowledge so you can then help them get to a repeatable process? Or would you say that a lot of them already have that repeatable process down? No, uh, they don't necessarily have the repeatable process. And I don't want to necessarily speak uh, uniformly for, for all because, you know, so, some, some, some are better than others. Uh, but yeah, it, the process is a huge part of it. I think there's always there's always ability to refine process. I mean, when you look at a problem cross-functionally, 
there's always something that can be improved. And I think that we bring obviously that outside perspective and that experience, that knowledge base, that tribal knowledge. Nick, we talk about consistency a lot on this show because it's something that's very important to me personally. And as we start talking about cannabis as either a CPG product or as a medicine, the idea that consumers and patients aren't getting a consistent product is a little bit scary. If one Tylenol pill had 50 milligrams of acetaminophen and another had 5,000, we could be in a very bad shape as a, a society in terms of our health. So when we look to standardization, when we look to uh, repeatability or consistency, you know, it's consistency of the input materials and then consistency of the process that you then take the material through. So uh, can you take a low quality starting material and turn it into a phenomenal concentrate? And if not, then what is that process of taking a really high level concentrate, I'm sorry, a high level quality flower and then getting a consistent extract from it? Sure, yeah, so I think you you have two paths there, right? One is the low quality flower and the answer is absolutely, we can turn that into a high quality concentrate uh, and we can do it with a, a level of consistency and repeatability that is absolutely precise. And what we think about is, you know, we go back to this sort of soup, this this extract Mm -hmm. soup, we have the crude oil. What we want to do ultimately is isolate the THC or the other cannabinoids or a group of cannabinoids, whether it's the THC and CBD or THC and uh, CBG or whatever it is. We want to isolate these cannabinoids. This can totally be done, right? I mean, we can isolate these to 99.9% purity. It's not a problem. Um, We can then, you know, take that isolate Uh, And we can recombine that, or we can even take isolates of different cannabinoids as commoditized type of products, right? So for example, if we wanted to make a one-third THC, one-third CBG, one-third CBN product, we could absolutely do that. And if we wanted to combine it with 7% terpenes, um, you know, with a blend of like alpha-pinene and mercerin or something like that, we can do that, right? So formulation is basically universal. And because we're taking commoditized purified versions of each one of these molecules, mm-hmm. we can absolutely produce them in, in those types of concentrates and purities uh, all the way up to, you know, pharmaceutical grade, not an issue. Um, it's just a matter of how much they want to spend on infrastructure. We can reconstitute those and we can have a stable product every single time, right? So it doesn't matter how bad the biomass is. We're after the, the cannabinoids that are in there. We'll isolate the cannabinoids or whatever good constituents of it for example, has a great terpene profile, but very low THC. If we just want the terps off of it, just take the terps. Off of it. Um, from, from the other standpoint, you know, if we're making an artisanal product, we're doing exactly the opposite, right? We're trying to capture the natural essence of what comes out of that plant without a lot of the undesirables. So this is where it becomes very important, good agricultural practices, consistency in growing, consistency in the genetics, uh, you know, the nutrient regimens, the flushing, the harvesting, if we're doing live resin, when is that harvest, right? Generally, we're taking the harvest before we start to get, you know, the amber type of hue on the trichomes. We're taking it a little bit early, generally a week earlier than you normally would if you were going to take the product to flower. And we're immediately um, either flash freezing or deep freezing that product in order to prevent the oxidation of the cannabinoids, prevent the oxidation of the terpenes. And then ultimately when we extract it, we're doing so very, very cold. So we're only picking up the cannabinoids and terpene, creating those highly desirable artisanal products 
capturing that native smell, that essence, uh, that, that full spectrum cannabinoid profile from the plant. But you can't do that unless you have a very good plant to begin with, because in that artisanal process, there's a very, very minimal amount of refinement. The only refinement you typically see is just an off-gassing process. Now, off-gassing process is when we use butane or propane as a solvent, we're effectively pulling it out of the extractor. It generally has about a mm-hmm. thousand parts per millionth of residual solvent in it. So we're using very gentle, generally vacuum oven drying processes, uh, which p- applies a very mild heat. And when I say very mild, I mean like 80, 85 degrees uh, with a very deep vacuum. And what's going to happen, it's going to lower the boiling point of those residual solvents within that uh, micellar, within that extract. It's going to remove that residual solvent down to a non-detectable level, again, below um, in some instances, you know, they take it below 50 parts per million. In some instances, they go all the way down to non-detect. And it's important to understand that hydrocarbons, um, you know, at those levels have a very, very low level of toxicity. You breathe in more hydrocarbons sitting in traffic than you would uh, smoking a 50 parts per millionth residual solvent extract. So just to give some sort of context there. But The important part to understand is that when you are extracting artisanal cannabis, there's a very, very low level of refining. So if you want to do it consistently, consistently, for example, have, you know, a Gorilla Glue live resin pen, that Gorilla Glue and those standard agricultural practices need to be consistent every single time. You know, same veg time, same nutrient regimen, same flush time, same lighting cycle, same uh, indoor cultivation parameters in terms of humidity, temperature, you know, cycling everything that you need to do. It has to be really precision agriculture to create a consistent precision artisanal extract. If we're on the other side, as I said, you know, we can, we can isolate these molecules and we can recombine them. Uh, that's typically what you're going to see in types of pharmaceuticals. Uh, it's typically what you're going to see in a lot of the, you know, edibles because they're using purified cannabinoids, purified distillate, so they can get their milligram dosing absolutely precise. So I think you'll see both of them, right? Um, both have their place. Both uh, are going to be in the industry. And it's just a matter of, you know, do people prefer artisanal or do they prefer something mass produced? And I think you can compare it to wine or you can compare it to beer, right? You have uh, Coors, you have Budweiser, and you have all these microbreweries, right? And, you know, last I checked, the market share is like 50 50. And mm-hmm. same thing with wine. You know, you got the Kendall Jacksons of the world, then you have the, um, highly desirable, small batch, small vineyard. And I think it's going to be absolutely the same in cannabis. I'm glad to hear you say that. I think there is a lot of room in this industry to grow in a lot of different directions. One of your ethos, uh, one of your core principles uh, when you started PE is that there's a lot of room, a lot of uh, room for advancement. And uh, we're at the very beginning. But when I look at the Delta or the the difference in the product segments between an artisanal product where you're trying to capture in essence minimal refinement versus uh, you know uh, the opposite side of that coin where you're taking maybe uh, isolated compounds and then recombining them to get to a desired recipe, if you will. Um, very, very different. And both of them will have market applicability. I personally tend to fall on the artisanal side of things for that. Uh, the way I like my food, the way I like my cannabis, the way I like my alcohol. Um, do you see the, I guess, market share remaining about maybe half artisanal and, and half what I would call more commercial or do you think that we're going to evolve as a consumer, as a cannabis consumer culture, 
uh, in one direction or another. <clears throat> Excuse me. It, it's, it's hard to say because there's all these different outside pressures, right? And there, there definitely is the people that just love the, you know, just the run of the mill. Hey, give me my five milligram edible or my five milligram gummy, make it strawberry and I'm good, you know? That's and then I think that the people that are more immersed in the culture and the people that are more uh, aficionados are going to absolutely gravitate towards artisanal things. And I'm the same way with food and same way as you with everything in my life, right? Uh, I want it coming from the local farm. I want, you know, everything artisanal. Uh, but there's, man, if you look at the majority of society, the majority of society is not like that. So the question is, well, how does that trend play out in cannabis? It's hard to say. I think that there's both. Um, and, and unfortunately, we don't have like from BDS or uh, any of these analytical firms, we don't have great data that kind of splits that up, right? Because vape pens, you don't know if it's a live resin vape pen, is it a distillate vape pen, you know, it's very hard um, to, to really split these product categories out. I don't think that, you know, most dispensaries even have them split out in their chart of accounts or anything like that. So uh, I probably the best indicator of demand would really be what we see in terms of demand for infrastructure. And I can tell you that yeah. the demand for infrastructure right now is overwhelmingly towards hydrocarbon. Like I'm and like 80% of the infrastructure we're building is hydrocarbon. That's fantastic. And, and I think that that is probably the way the market goes because even when I'm talking to wonderful scholars like Dr. Ethan Russo, who's espousing the need for full spectrum extracts uh, you know, while you can recombine different isolated ingredients and get very close, it's not the same as a diverse chemical compound soup <laughs> that we've been talking about where there's upwards of 540 different chemical compounds and the specific proportions and ratios of each compound and to one to another is what is really responsible for the individualized effect that people get from a cannabis product. So good to see that the artisanal is uh, definitely gaining traction and that we have the technology to improve lower quality material and to make valuable material and to continue to iterate and honestly improve on processes uh, as we go. Currently, we hear a lot in the media about biosynthesis, but just because it's a popular topic for the press, that doesn't necessarily mean it's as pervasive in the industry or as common a practice as we would think. So what are your thoughts on biosynthesis and where it's headed and how it might impact the future of the cannabis industry? Well, um, we, we know a lot about biosynthesis because we're actively working on many different programs in our lab right now. And... Uh, I can tell you that it definitely works, right? There's multiple strains of yeast that can um, actively expel as a metabolite cannabinoids, whether it's uh, CBG or CBN. Um, there's several different strains of yeast now that they have that are absolutely doing this. Now, the challenge becomes just like anything else. It's not just a purified cannabinoid coming out of there. There's all sorts of different metabolites that are completely unidentified, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of different compounds. So much as we discussed before, there's going to be a methodology of purification that's going to need to be put in place in order to purify these cannabinoids. Now, you know, at that point, 
do the producers of these cannabinoids from these biosynthesis type reactions disclose this to the end user? And is the end user going to accept a synthesized or synthetic, arguably synthetic, even though it's biosynthetic, a synthesized cannabinoid for their consumption? That's the big question that I have. And I tend to think that almost everybody that consumes cannabis has a naturopathic bone somewhere in their body. When man starts meddling with these things, it's never the same as uh, the, the natural sort of course of events that's taking place. And the second part of it is beyond the acceptance how does this technology scale? Uh, as I just kind of alluded to, you know, there's hundreds, if not thousands of different uh, constituents coming out of these, uh, these bacteria, or these yeast uh, as metabolites. And these constituents need to be identified by something like HPLC, MSNS. But even when those constituents are identified, the purification of the cannabinoids is still increasingly challenging. I really like your uh, analogy of uh, chemical soup, because when I've heard about biosynthesis, I'm sure a lot of people have had the same thought that the uh, organisms are putting out a very purified version. Uh, a very specific chemical compound, but what you're describing is really likening their bio waste to a a very diverse soup. And then you still have to go through a purification process to get the chemical compounds that are of interest. So uh, as a process right now, while it's functional, we haven't figured out fully how to scale it. And then there's adoption issues coupled with uh, you know, the need for a cleaner product, which has to go through a multi-phase uh, process to essentially turn it into a form factor that can be used by the industry. Absolutely. Yep. Excellent. Now, do you see, and this is really far out there, but do you see people messing around with things like GMO, so not the strain, but with, say, CRISPR technology and trying to work on this, not necessarily with a huge R&D budget of one of our biopharma companies, but do you see backyard chemists and biologists working with CRISPR on biosynthesis, or is that a little bit too much right now? You know, I, I don't, so the people that we're working with are partnered labs, that are on the other side that are um, working with these yeasts and bacteria, I don't have great visibility into the technology that they're using in order to um, create these different strains and, and manipulate them. I would assume that it is some sort of gene, edit- gene editing, whether it's a CRISPR-like technology, um, and mapping the genome and obviously looking at the individual alleles of the genome to figure out, you know, how they're going to manipulate this, which is kind of ironic, honestly, because if they're going to put all that effort in, why why not just do it with the cannabis plant and make (laughs) it produce the cannabinoid that you want it to produce. Right. (laughs) I mean, I think there's people working on that too, but yeah, I mean, it's, so I I don't have great visibility because a lot of those details uh, they, they don't share with us. They're tight to the chest as, as we are, right. That, like their goal is to produce the best um, 
organisms that produce these cannabinoids. And our goal, you know, our, our kind of working relationship is to create the most purified form of, you know, these metabolites that these uh, organisms are producing. And we work cooperatively, but we both each kind of stay in our own lanes, respectively. And I think with the uh, desired outcome that, you know, when we're able to make it work at an appreciable scale, there'll be something there that's uh, substantial and ability to be monitored. That'll be very exciting, Nick, when we get to that point. I'm sure it'll have ripple effects throughout the industry. Um, that said, another source for cannabinoids and for crude has often talked about lower cost foreign production. So South America, I know Colombia and Ecuador are popular places for uh, US-based companies to start investing and putting into uh, larger agricultural production. How do you work with uh, people outside of the U.S.? Does PE have a, a big footprint internationally, and do you see uh, trending in certain areas? Yeah, so our footprint isn't enormous right now outside of the U.S., although we have done uh, dozens of installations. It's not like, you know, the, the thousand installations that we have in North America, right? That's obviously our right. bread and butter. And it's part of really our corporate strategy is is – you know, eat what's in your own backyard before you go wandering out in the forest trying to kill something else. Uh, just good business strategy 101. But yeah, absolutely. So I think what you're going to see drive these non-domestic uh, large cultivation sites is, uh, you know, opening of federal legalization. And obviously you have that in Canada. A lot of the, the Canadian, um, the Canadian publics, you know, they stood up this massive indoor greenhouse cultivation infrastructure that was, you know, 10 times bigger than the Canadian population could ever consume. And nobody was looking at it. Nobody was doing the math. And then, you know, the whole bottom fell out of that. And they realized quickly that not only is it extremely expensive to stand up all that infrastructure and to grow in, in uh, Canada up there just because of the climate, but because of their federal legalization, they have this open window to be able to cultivate uh, in these cooperative jurisdictions, you know, in South America, Colombia in particular. So we've done some business down there. And obviously the growing season uh, is just amazing down there. And it really contributes to um, kind of just this catalyst effect of the Canadians and the people that have federal legalization looking to produce as much low cost cannabis as possible. Now, this has been a very slow road, right? And I think COVID has slowed this down substantially because even if you're producing a massive amount back down there, it's not, I don't think it's ever going to come in the United States, to be honest. And I think even if we get federal legalization, which we, uh, we were going to chat about a little bit earlier, but even if we get federal legalization, states like their tax revenues. And I think it's going to be pretty hard pressed once you get all these individual state programs in place for them to just uproot them and just say, oh, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Now it's federally regulated. I think that you'll see uh, something very similar to alcohol, right, where each state has its own alcohol laws, licensing, et cetera. Uh, you know, you may have federal excise tax or something, things like that. You have federal regulation in terms of manufacture and ATF. It's going to happen uh, probably quite similar to cannabis. I mean, maybe ATF will become like ATFC or something mm -hmm. like that. But 
the, to digress to your to your previous question, standing up the infrastructure in uh, alternative jurisdictions, yeah, there's absolutely merit to that. It's just it's not really the logistics that are stopping anything. It's the motive of the people making the laws. And the motive of the people making the laws is tax revenue and votes and dollars and jobs. And it's the same way that Americans don't want, you know, their, their manufacturing shipped off to China or manufacturing shipped off to, to, to Mexico. Right. Because we want to, we want to be the manufacturing hub. We want to provide jobs. So I think that this is going to be an ongoing debate. Um, how it's going to pan out. It's hard to see, but again, my default answer is that each one of these micro economies, whether it's state by state, province by province, or country by country is going to want to protect their revenue, their tax dollars, their jobs, and their manufacturing. And unless there's some sort of perverse incentive otherwise, I think that's likely uh, how things will end up playing out. That's a really interesting perspective. I love your use of microeconomy to kind of characterize the state's economy and their interest as we start looking at a macro or global economy for cannabis. Uh, and you know, again, for the lower cost, isolated products, if you produce an isolate and ship it from South America, uh, you know, it's a lot easier than trying to grow a really high quality flower that's full spectrum and ship that internationally. So uh, definitely will have different impacts on different segments of the market. But to your point, I think federal lawmakers here in the U.S. are going to know who butters their biscuit, if you will. Uh, and with that regard, you know, they're not going to look to throw jobs or money under the bus. Their job is to get votes and get reelected and uh, hopefully do what's best for their constituency. So yep. hopefully we will see that. But uh, we brought it up. We, we just touched on it and we're running out of time. It's been so much fun talking, Nick, but maybe we should touch on federal legalization, where we are now and where we hope we're going. Um, if I just gave you the blanket statement that Schumer's bill this week uh, was very, you know, appreciated uh, as a national bill to legalize cannabis, to change the classification uh, with banking. But even the people that put forth the bill didn't seem to think there was a high likelihood of it moving forward. What is your take on federal legalization, the timeline, and the overall impact on state markets? Yeah, so um, we'll unpack that. Let's start with the state markets first. Again, I think that to my previous statements, they're all going to work to enact and protect their best interest from a tax revenue standpoint, from a job standpoint. And I don't see even upon descheduling or federal legalization for states to just bend over and just say, okay, you can grow all your cannabis and uh whatever it is, California or Texas. And, you know, we're just bring it all in. We're not going to, we're not going to get any of that tax. Revenue. I just don't see that happen. I don't see like the, the consolidation of infrastructure, especially when this state by state program has already been online. The second part of it is I see federal legalization, obviously opening up uh, the ability for the floodgates for banking and for institutional capital, even more so than it already is. So I see that as an overwhelmingly positive uh, attribute of potentially something happening at the federal level. 
The, the, the third thing that I think will really happen is the, the regulation of production. So in supplement manufacturing and pharmaceutical manufacturing, you probably heard me talk about this before, but we have something called good manufacturing practices, GMP or CGMP it's referred to. And if, if you go to the store, for example, you might know like now brands, or you might know solar a or something like that. If you're buying your vitamin C or your, your B complex or your multivitamin, uh, all of those companies, they manufacture to what's called uh good manufacturing practices. And really what that is in a nutshell, so we could spend another two hours on that, but it's, it's traceability from the moment um, the, the raw material is being created all the way to the point it hits the consumer's bloodstream so that if there's ever any sort of uh, adulterant or any sort of risk to making anybody sick, they can trace back the problem to exactly where it came from, whether that was the, the raw product or a leak in one of the equipments or, you know, leaching metals from uh, improper metals being used in manufacturing and some of the equipment, whatever that is, right? So you'll see these CGMP guidelines be implemented on a federal level, likely through the FDA, uh, and you'll see a lot of the cannabis infrastructure need to be retrofitted or um, really brought up to speed in a reactionary type way. There are a lot of people that are forward thinking on this, a lot of companies that are forward thinking that see this. But uh, ultimately, you know, the, the good agricultural practices, good housekeeping practices, good manufacturing practices, these are all things that are uniform in parallel industries and, and federal legalization will catalyze that for, for cannabis. And, you know, in terms of federal tax timing on the bill, timing on legalization, man, I, I just feel like, you know, the governments, governments in general can be so dysfunctional, right? There's so many vested interests and lobbying efforts and all of these different sort of forces pulling and, uh, I have given up trying to predict what's going to happen uh, in, in Washington. And I think, you know, we're just kind of at the mercy of playing the game. The good part is, you know, through like second and third degree thinking, we know what's going to happen once this, uh, once this legalization or declassification, however it comes forth, once it happens, we, we know what the, you know, the second and third step is through using just a, a little bit of critical thinking. So I think we can prepare for it regardless. Um, but I do think it's going to trigger a cannabis bull market. That's just, I mean, it's going to be crazy, right? It's, it's probably going to be something like the dot-com um, in the late nineties and early two thousands. And it's, it's going to be a, a great time to be in the industry, whether you're building or growing or, or working or investing. That is the truth, Nick. And, you know, no one has a crystal ball or we would know exactly how legalization plays out. Uh, it is in the works. It seems like an inevitability, but uh, time and inevitable uh, limitless time are, are quite different. So we have no real understanding of when it will actually move forward. And I like your thought that you can position based on the fact that we know it's inevitable and just start thinking through that process now. Um, and so with that, Nick, we are running out of time. One last quick question for you. What is the future of PE and how can people get a hold of you if they have questions uh, to follow up on our conversation today? Sure. So, I mean, the future of our company is we're going to continue to do what we do and remain the industry leader in technology, innovation and all things extraction. 
And obviously you'll see us integrate uh, more and more infrastructure for all the Marathon State operators and obviously all the the startups too, right? It's a huge portion of our business and we treat them just as well as we treat the multi-state operators. We love the new entrants and we love helping people start successful businesses in the industry. That's really what we're here for. And, and we, we thrive on that. Uh, you guys can find us at precisionextraction.com. All of our social media handles are at Precision Extraction, Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook, and the like. And if you want to just give us a ring, it's 855-420-0020. Got the, the 420 in there just for nostalgia. Um, but we're always there to help. You know, we, we have an excellent, excellent team, a lot of very talented, very smart people. So if you're thinking about extracting, uh, give us a ring and, and let us chat with you before you get uh, before you get into it. We'll advise you what's best to do. Honestly, Nick, you guys are top in the industry. And as they say, you're going to pay for your education one way or another. You might as well go with the best. Uh Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show, talking about precision extraction and just the industry as a whole with our audience. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, really enjoyed this and hope to have you on again in the future. It's my pleasure. Uh, it was really fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, we'll chat again. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Everybody, thank you for tuning in and have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Future of Growth. We love to hear from our audience. Have a great idea for a guest or a topic you'd like us to cover? Thoughts you want to share? Reach out to media at agrify.com. Don't forget to stay connected with Agrify at Agrify Corp on all platforms and by visiting us at www.agrify.com. See you next time for another episode of The Future of Growth.